The Cogent Code Podcast, logical and convincing, a deep dive into the standards and rules we live by in today's society. I'm your host, Akil Bechtimba, and my co-host is Sia Parker. Welcome back to the Cogent Code Podcast. This episode of the Cogent Code Podcast is about the sensitive subject of the COVID-19 vaccinations. We'll talk about how important it is for the doctors and scientists to get it right, how it would be distributed to Americans and the world, the idea of herd immunity, and the real apprehension felt and expressed by those on all sides of the issue. Now, while Sia and I have our opinions on the topic, we are obviously not any on we're obviously not on anyone's COVID-19 response team. Therefore, we are extremely fortunate to have our guest, Dr. Ebony Haynes, who will be joining us to give her expert opinion and professional uh, opinion on the subject of public health and uh, and the topic here. So let's get into it. So in the Urban Dictionary, uh, we looked up vaccination and um, we uh, it, it wasn't that there wasn't that many kind, uh, I guess, descriptions of vaccinations and other things. So uh, Akil picked uh, vaccinations is the administration of a antigenic material to produce immunity or cl- close to immunity to a disease. And that wasn't, you know, that that was all that they had, except for they had some opinions uh, in there about how how they think about people who are anti-vaxxers and that kind of thing, which we're not going to share because those aren't the expressed opinion of this show. So but maybe, gonna, go ahead. But maybe we should say what an anti-vaxxer is, right? Because there, sure. there are so many people right now um, that are concerned about that whole community of anti-vaxxers, which are people that don't believe in uh um, in, in vaccinations. And, and some of them will state that uh, they believe that there are other harmful effects that are caused by um, vaccinations, such as autism and or um, they don't feel that you should be injecting um, part of the virus into your body to, to build an immunity. So they would prefer just to forego vaccinations, right? So there's a whole community of anti-vaxxers that believe it's their right not to have to vaccinate their kids or themselves. And so I guess, you know, there's so much, so much concern about that group of people because this COVID-19 response has to be a, a, a kind of a community situation, right? It can't be a single, single person uh, deciding um, that they're going to get it and we're all going to be able to go back outside again. So it, I, I think we'll get into those anti-vaxxers and kind of the importance of them later, right, Akil? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, we definitely get into that. And uh, I'm glad you brought that up because that is, you know, there's a they're anti-vaxxers from every single um, political, you know, angle, from every single ethnic or racial background, from every, you know, from from all over the kind of the scope. And um, and so it, it's an interesting thing where, you know, where, you know, and a lot of things that we talk about, you know, it's very specific regarding who is saying what. But this one has, you know, kind of a wide, wide range of um you know, uh, of voices on this. But before we get into discussion about the vaccinations, I want to just delve a little bit into what COVID-19 or the COVID-19 virus is. Wait, Uh, wait, wait. Don't we want to say who our guest is in in like more depth and kind of introduce her background so people know since since she's a doctor, you know, a DR. Right, right, right. right. So I, 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 you know, I, 
I was remiss in that, so I digress. Thank you very much Leah, for bringing me back to uh, to making sure that I get a chance for my very good friend and business partner and and on and on and on, um, Ebony Haynes, Dr. Ebony Haynes. I want to give her a chance to introduce herself. Hi, Ebony. Hi, Q. It's good to be with you all this evening. Hey, I wanted to um, first say thank you for inviting me on, I guess, in light of all that has transpired in the last two weeks with Dr. Jill Biden. Let me set the record straight. First, I'm not a medical doctor. I'm a PhD doctor. Uh, Regardless, we go through a lot of schooling in order to get those extra letters behind our name. Let, Let me tell you, I'm a JD and that you earn it. Girl, you that's, right. that's right. That's right. So my background is um, in public health. I've been doing public health work for well over 20 years. I started out my training doing HIV AIDS, STD prevention education in high risk communities um, among young people, among um, IV drug users, among the LGBTQ community. Um, and in inner city communities. And over time, I've transitioned into more policy work and uh, also into uh, research. And so I recently received my PhD in health services policy and management. And so that background and training really does, um, I guess, lend itself nicely to this conversation this evening because, you know, we learn a lot about um, policy in health systems and all of those organizations that are connected to um, services, delivering health services to individuals and communities. So not just hospitals, but also public health departments and um, insurance companies and anyone else that's, that's doing work to ensure the health of our population. So glad to be with you all today. Right on, right on. It's so good to have you um, to give us some some gravity to to the situation because you know I I have a lot of opinions, but you know yes he does <laughs> for you to you know help bring some uh, some levity to it is very important. And Sia is talking about me, but she has a lot of opinions too. She just thinks uh, she's smarter uh, than me. No, I uh, what we're smart. We're smart in different ways. There you go. There you go. Okay, I'll take that. But let's 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 get into it. I just want to. Uh, so before we get, you know, really talking about the vaccinations, um, let's talk about COVID nineteen, just the virus itself. And um, you know, wanted to to bring to the you know to our listeners you know those who kind of have heard it from all different names you know good bad and ugly names um what is the novel coronavirus 2019 or SARS covid 2 you want me to answer i'll answer well, uh, not, obviously, you did some research, I hope, for the listeners. Well, the, only, the, the only thing that I'll say to, to kind of get it started is that um, that is a severe acute respiratory syndrome, coronavirus 2. And what's interesting about it is, you know, it being COVID-19, um, people wonder where the 19 comes from. And it really comes from 2019. The fact that it was 2019 yeah. um, when this one hit us all, um, which is also interesting because if we all learned about it in 2020 and got hit with it in 2020, how did it get the name COVID-19? No, the cases in, I think the cases that they had said that happened in China were in December of 2019. So that's why it was named uh, COVID-19. But 
Um, I do want to kind of ask, and maybe Ebony knows this, but SARS is not new to us, right? So SARS-CoV-2, is that just an evolution of a different type of virus that jumps from human to animal or animal to human, I guess, right? Animal to human? Or how does how does that classify? Yeah, so SARS is not new. SARS is a, um, is a common um, virus that's out there. And the COVID, too, is really just a um, like a strain of that virus. So we've seen SARS viruses even here in the United States in the past, and they just have never... Um, never really caused the kind of disruption um, to us like we're seeing now. And um, so that's what makes this novel virus a little different because it definitely um, kind of came in um, abruptly and really was um, something that we weren't that prepared for. We did not have a, a response for it like we did, like we were able to um, develop in past situations where we had SARS outbreaks. Um, I think the last time we might have seen a SARS outbreak here in the United States was maybe 2003. But um, but yeah, it definitely did not rise to the same level as this, um, this virus is here in the United States. Okay. Okay. So, so that's, that's very important, I think, to note, because I think people get really confused and then they were calling it a SARS. I, I think they separated it by just calling it uh coronavirus night, uh, 2019 so that we all were clear on, on what it, what it was. And then we, some people call it the Rona, right? So, I mean, it's, we, we're going to call it whatever we want to call it, I guess, to be fearful, but we want to make sure we clarify the proper names and kind of how uh, they're getting their names. So, how, how did we as Americans get here? I mean, that's that's uh, interesting. I think for, I'll give my opinion because, and then we'll let you clear it up because obviously our opinions don't mean anything if they're not grounded in fact. But for me, I think that um, what's interesting about this situation, um, and um, if you think about plagues or this uh, or the Spanish flu or those kind of things. In the past, a uh, hundred years ago or so, one one thing that I found interesting about the way that the COVID nineteen spread um, was that we have a uh, the way that we're able to travel and move about uh, definitely is evolved over over the years. It's our other expert back there in the back. Yeah, he likes to, he likes to jump in when he when he feels the need, but he's. He's fed, so he should be cool. Anyways, um, as I was saying, so what I think, how did we get here? I think that um, that now um, we have travel, right? So people are able to enter in and out of countries, uh, you know, very easily, uh, frequently. And so when a virus is on another continent, right, or, or somewhere else, uh, and it's as contagious as this respiratory spread virus, what happens to me now is that we're in real danger of it becoming a pandemic when it can spread like this. Because uh, the, if, if we look at the places that it entered into countries, it was a lot of it, uh, was caused by people that had come in from obviously China at the time, if that was the, if, if we believe that that's where the first 
place where the the virus was uh, found and then got on a plane, right? And then you get into an international airport, you're coming into contact with all those folks on your plane that air is circulating. Yes. And then you're getting off the plane and you're having to go through checkpoints. You're ordering your food before you get on. I mean, you are just like, and then you're just going home. If you're in New York, you're getting on a subway. I mean, it is just the possibilities have become endless. Whereas before, a hundred years ago, uh, if if a if a type of uh, thing like a plague or a Spanish flu or whatever was coming about, the travel was more limited, right? So the the folks that would get it would could be a quarantine, I guess, so we say, or in a smaller area. So it would spread, but it may not take out as many people as it's taking out now. So that's my, my thought. And then I also, Akil knows this, I've said this before, I think um, many countries, but especially here in, in America, we're incredibly selfish and individualistic. So we tend not to have a community mentality, whereas other countries that have been able to deal with it better um, are a lot Looking more, co- they're, mm-hmm. well, they're more socially designed. They're more community oriented, oriented. They have generations living in the same home, all those kind of things. Right. And they tend to care about uh, their, their sense of community, therefore protecting the community as part of their culture. Whereas here, although we, we we do value communities in ways we're very individualistic we believe in everyone for themselves and we believe in civil liberties so it makes our culture a little bit more uh susceptible to the spread because everybody who wants to say i can make the decisions for myself anti-vaxxers could be in this category right I should be able to make it and you can't force me to do anything different. And that's why I live in America. So I think we got here partly because of uh, selfishness and partly because we travel in different ways now and we're most more likely to come in contact with a larger group of people. And we're also, uh, you know, more transient, right? We were able to move about. Mm -hmm. And so that's my opinion. All right. So, so before we, yeah, before we jump into the next thing, I just wanted to know, um, you know, you mentioned earlier about the previous SARS, I think you said 20, uh, 2003. Uh, and for a lot of us, we didn't even know that that was happening. Uh, it was, you know, there were, were I guess, less people inf- uh, affected. And for, like I said, for the general public, I don't even know if, if we even really knew what happened. So is it really, is it more um, for this version, the 2019 version, are we uh, more susceptible because of the transmission, the way that it's transmission um, now, as opposed to before, or is it, you know, is it just that this one is so much stronger? Yeah, that's a good question. So first I'll say um, there is still so much that we don't know about this coronavirus, right? We are still getting information in and if you know anything about research, it takes a long time, especially when we start thinking about clinical research. And that's what this would have to be. Um, but the previous instance of SARS here in the United States probably was not on our radar because it had t- very different characteristics than the current SARS outbreak, right? So if we go back to like middle school, high school, biology class, then, you know, we 
might remember that there are viruses and bacteria around us all the time, right? So no matter where we are, no matter what we touch, even on our own bodies and in our own bodies, we have viruses and bacteria that live happily and, you know, they don't create major problems for us most of the time. And part of the reason why they don't is because they're not as, let's say, they may not be as strong. So with viruses, we think about virulence when we talk about viruses in terms of how strong it might be, how likely it might be in um, creating an immune response, or how likely it is to cause us to become very sick, where our immune system can't attack it like it might attack other things that we come in contact with, right? And so it could really be that um, that this this SARS is just more virulent than the other versions that we've seen. And keep in mind that we have different. Um, we have different strains of viruses and bacteria out there too, right? And so just because we've seen a type of flu, for example, right. from, you know, from one year to the next, the flu looks different. And there are lots of reasons why the flu looks different from year to year. But just think about, you know, viruses are really smart and they are able to mutate. Um, pretty quickly. And so we might see that, yes, last year's flu looked one way, but this year's flu strain is going to look very different, right? So that's why you have to get a flu shot every year, because we base that on um, what what version of the flu is out there. With SARS-CoV-2, it is kind of a similar concept, right? So what we're seeing now is that this SARS-CoV-2 looks different from the SARS-CoV-2 that we've seen before. And quite possibly it's because this version is more virulent. It may have changed over mm. time to become stronger. Um, you know, the viruses take our genetic material and it, it tries to figure out ways to, um, to outsmart our immune systems, right? So it could be that that could have happened, or it really could just be that in its natural habitat, it has just naturally mutated. And so it is a more virulent of stronger strain than what we've seen before. But right. the jury's still out on that. Right. And so so is there more than one strain of um, COVID that people are getting? Because some people are obviously are asymptomatic. They're not knowing they have it. Some people are getting this very mild case, right? And then some people are getting a very extreme case where they're ending up in ICU and some people obviously are dying from it. So is that because of what you're stating? Is that because there's more than one uh, or it's mutated in some ways? Or is that uh, the person's body who's they're entering, who it's entering in their immune system or their genetics that's making it? Um, yeah, so not necessarily. Not there. It's not necessarily the case that the SARS has mutated, right? Um, more likely is the case that our bodies have responded differently to COVID, right? The same strain of COVID. And, you know, our body's response is based on so many different factors. So you hear a lot right now about people who have comorbidities. And so if you have, let's say, um, you're, you're obese and let's say you're a diabetic, then you're going to be at higher risk of 
having severe symptoms from COVID because your immune system is already working overtime, trying to just, you know, handle all the things that are going on within your body as it is. And then you add SARS to it on this COVID-19 on top of it, then your immune system is like, look, y'all, I'm tired. Right. And so, so that's why we see that people who tend to not be in the best of health are the ones who are most at risk of um, having a severe case of COVID-19 and dying from COVID-19. What other think about our, you know, the communities, you know, where do we find, you know, those comorbidities the highest, right? It's typically in more minority communities, um, more lower income communities. And so those are the folks that are, of course, being more most impacted by COVID-19 right now. And is that the, is that the, uh, you know, I think that there are obviously historical reasons for that, but is that, have to do with the fact that they are getting less quality care um, or are they not, you know, are folks not um, going to see their doctor as regular or, you know, are those are those uh, some of the kind of the factors that are um, contributing to that fact that you just mentioned? Yeah. So it's complicated. Right. So if you think about People who live in more urban communities that maybe have a teaching hospital, then people who tend to be treated in those hospitals probably are are fortunate enough to get those hospitals that are the most resourced. They have the, you know, the um the better equipment, right? Because those hospitals can afford that type of equipment. Um, But then when you look at communities like in very rural and remote parts of different states, many of those hospitals before COVID-19 were really just hanging on to survive. And so when you start talking about being able to buy 25, 50 ventilators for a small rural hospital that is struggling to make payroll, it's just not going to happen. And so if you have, and this happened in South Georgia when um, COVID first hit, um, where we saw there being whole communities that were, um, you know, had high infection rates, but very few hospitals that really could meet the those needs. And so individuals were having to travel, you know, like 100 miles away to get to a hospital that could um, provide care for them. And, you know, many people who live in small, rural and poor communities can't afford to do that. And so, you know, you go to your na- your neighborhood hospital. Um, but if your neighborhood hospital doesn't have beds and you can't afford to travel, then, you know, what what's the case? So, you know, it really depends on a number of different factors, not just where you live. Right. You know, you mentioned the historical piece. Um, it, you mentioned the doctor piece, which a lot of folks, we don't talk about it as much in kind of like lay communities. But, you know, our folks tend not to go to the doctor. Right. And so we have. Um, health issues that have gone untreated for years, right? And then, you know, you you add this COVID-19 on top of it, then it, you know, makes for a really um, tough situation. Um, But I think for most, my opinion is that, you know, one of the things that really has affected us the hardest is the fact that we have not seen consistency in terms of, 
what our elected officials have been willing to do in terms of their response. And so when you have some communities that are implementing mask mandates, but then you have neighboring communities that aren't, then it's just like no community implementing a mask mandate, right? Um, because it's unrealistic to think that people aren't going to travel and um, and come into contact with those individuals. So it's, it's so multifaceted. Um, it's not just that, you know, we don't go to the doctor. It's not just because, you know, of the hospitals that we have in our local areas. It's not just because of the comorbidities. It, there are just so many other factors, um, political, personal, educational, um, because we know that, um, People who are who don't have high health literacy, people who don't understand, you know, what the doctor is telling them, those things contribute to um, the problem of the spread of COVID nineteen in um, in all communities, but in particular in our communities, in communities of color. And that doesn't, and that's not even taking into account um, just kind of the the plain um, rebellion or ignorance to taking any kind of. Uh, precautions. Um, I'm still, you know, we're what, however many months, eight, 10 months into this thing. And, you know, we're seeing the numbers spike higher than, you know, and, and you would think, you know, you, I, I guess I kind of understand more the, um, more people are getting contracted, but I think what's, what's shocking me these days are the fact that the death that we're seeing, you know, 3,500 people dying a day um, when it seems like we know more, like you said, we're studying, we're, le- we're learning more, people are learning more, the doctors are, you know, vaccinations have been worked on, blah, blah, blah. Um, but we're, we're, you know, we're seeing more people die every single day than, and we're breaking new records every single day, which is, you know, which is, is, is crazy to me. But people people have COVID fatigue. That's what I think we're all seeing, right? For at, at first, when we did the first level of lockdowns, I'm in California, by the way. So obviously, California was very serious in the first wave of locking it all down. Uh, there was a lot of compliance, right, with with the lockdown, at least in San Diego, where I live, uh, in the Bay Area, where most of our family lives. Uh, but in Orange County, where I was, where I grew up, there was not that same type of response. Uh, but if you look at, and I know political is one facet, if you look at the political climate, our governor here is is democratic. Um, the Bay Area tends to vote democratic. San Diego tends to vote democratic. Orange County tends to vote Republican. So some of it went along with kind of uh, what you saw in there, uh, potentially in people's uh, value of their civil liberty or freedom or what they believed uh, especially back to that community or lack thereof a community mentality, basically saying that I have freedom and liberty in, in, in above all else in, in, in type of, and I'm not bagging on it Republicans. Cause you know, I try to toe the line a little bit, but what I'm saying about that is some of the policies, when you look at what they try to implement is more individualistic. The government should have their hands off of situations. People should be able to act on their own accord, where in a democratic political climate, it's more social systems helping other people. And that's just the way that that those parties have aligned themselves, right? So it doesn't surprise me that in communities that may have either a governor who is 
you know, touting a certain response and or a community that tends to want civil liberties above all else, that you would see a response that would be varied, right? And then, and thereby, when you come to a COVID fatigue point, which we did around Thanksgiving and Christmas, and we're like, okay, well, we've been locked in this house for God knows how long. I think it's safe enough because I can wear a mask to go see my family, not really thinking about 25 people in an indoor closed space when you eat, you're going to take off your mask, right? So there is going to be a point, even if you want to say you're safe, right, where you take your mask down and thereby, if those folks are not in your household and someone's asymptomatic, there you go. Then then 25 people could potentially get COVID or 10 or, or whatnot. And then those 10 people, then some go back to Orange County, they spread it to other people. I mean, and thereby, you know... I, I mean, I even have, you know, I have a 21 year old son. He definitely has COVID fatigue and it's hard when he's an adult to control his every aspect. I can't be like, stay in the house all the time, even though I want to. I even see it with him and I'm like, look, it's getting worse. Why do you drive into Los Angeles when we have less COVID cases in San Diego? Like stay your butt in San Diego. It's way better for you. But People are going to do that. They let their guard down. You you know this, Akil. We just talked about oh, what's yeah. up with you lately. You let your guard down. You let your kids go for that one trip. You or you're you're like, oh well, I'll let them return to playing on the playground. And there you and there you go. You know, absolutely. And Akil is familiar with this story. So, you know, in my house, I'm I'm probably. Um, <laughs> I don't know. My family is is definitely tired of me and my rules. Um, but early on, actually in May, my youngest son was, you know, he had COVID fatigue. And so, you know, there was there were two instances where he went out, hung out with his friends. And, you know, after the the first time I told him, you know, you you can't do this again because it's too risky. At the time, my, my mother-in-law was staying with us and she um, is immunocompromised mm-hmm. and it was just too much of a risk. And he went out, hung out again. And I told him he had to find somewhere else to live because that is literally how serious this COVID situation is. And, and I do think that we have individuals who are, um, who are, they are definitely, experiencing COVID fatigue. And I think that they're also feeling like they can let their guard down because we have folks working on vaccinations and the vaccinations have started to roll out. They're feeling like, like you said, Sia, that I, I can wear my mask and I can go um, places and I, I and they have this sense of being safe. But I have had so many friends who have gone out, who have been masked up, who have taken taken all of the precautions that they thought they should take and they have landed in the hospital it, you know on respirators ventilators they have um had to spend two, one and two weeks in the hospital to recover young people generally healthy people and they had to you know experience that despite all of the precautions that they were taking and so you know we have to recognize that you know it this is a, a serious situation and and the fact that it is something that we've never encountered before, this nine months, 10 months of a a government response 
to this outbreak is not enough time for us to know exactly the precautions that we should be taking and to know exactly what we can and can't do. We're just not there yet. And that is part of the reason why um, some individuals are really skeptical right now about the vaccine. Um, And I think that that concern is warranted, but I do think that part of our challenge um, has less to do with the vaccine itself and more about more about making sure that folks get the right information. And right now what we're seeing is that folks are really not getting, um, they don't know where to get information, you know, um, especially since we've had this drama and I'll call it drama, you know, in the, in our federal government and this, um, this notion that we shouldn't listen to the nation's top infectious disease expert on this. Right. And, you know, he's guiding us in one direction. And then we see um, the administration saying that we should be going into another administration. And so some of the fallout is that now people aren't trusting of even information that comes out of the CDC. But, and but we've leaned on forever for information right. to keep I, us I, I totally agree. But I think one thing here that, and I've said this on the other podcasts we've had, is that part of this is our fault as, as a, a country that we have allowed for news channels and other places where we have gotten our past information from that were was fact-checked fact before people just spewed. Well, it's fine to have an opinion, but uh, there is a level of... Um, of responsibility you have when you're exposing people to that opinion. Um, not everybody is, is, is fortunate enough to go get an education, right? There are a lot of people in the communities that believe what their grandparents or their great grandparents or their parents or whatever has spread and told them about whatever, you know, not just a COVID situation on top of having like the federal government response being very disjointed. You, you don't know who, I mean, one day they're up together in a task force every day, giving you an update. And then the next day they're, they're having a rose garden party and, and, you know, 20 people are getting infected with COVID. It's, it's a very confusing messages. And for those people who aren't going to look past whatever source they go to, this is why I tell Akil to stop watching TV, but he doesn't listen to me, but, but it's, it's just that at this point, you're being exposed. And then you have the internet that doesn't have to be fact-checked at all, right? And it's coming from whatever source. So you Google something, the more negative that article you Googled, the more articles like that you're going to get. So it's it's a total Jedi mind situation with us right now. And, and if we didn't think people were sheep before, I think this experiment on our lives, which is very unfortunate, is definitely teaching us something about who we are as a, as a country, who we are as a, as a, a a community, even your communities, right. And your neighbors, you're learning things about them. I'm sure you you never knew. Um, But I think this is a really uh, special moment in life to really learn the lessons that you need to learn about your health, about your community and about the government and the news sources. And we need to take we need to push back and we need to definitely let them know that this is not, I mean, this is not the direction that we want to continue to go in. You know. 
I, I um, I'm, you know, I'm gonna keep it a buck as I always do. I, I, I think that you know, and, and see, it does beat me up about you know my addiction probably to CNN and and I actually I actually do the whole the whole Fox. gamut. I I do Fox, I do CNN, I do MSNBC, I do BBC, I do. Who has the time for know, this? I you know it, it's a fast. <laughs> I'm I'm quick on the I'm quick on the on the you know on the remote, so I can watch you know in 20 minutes I can see them all. But my I think my point is is that is that we have. Um, you know, we've had a situation, both of you guys have mentioned it in your own way, but we've had a situation where we've had an administration and a president who who is the most influential and going to be the most influential, no matter who the president president is, person in the nation for the most part. And we have never, ever, I think, I think going back to our question a few minutes ago about previous SARS and and other diseases and viruses. And I mean, we've been dealing with one or two or ten Every single year since we've been born, I'm 47 years old. I'm sure there's been, you know, more than we can possibly count. But we've never, ever, ever dealt with an administration where there was, like you said, where there was doubt cast on the CDC, doubt cast on, you know, the the top scientists in the world, you know, the World Health Organization, NIH, NIH, World Health Organization, CDC, anybody that that, you know, made him look like he wasn't on top of the game. And and it just, you know, and 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 it, you know, and it put us in a situation. I had a question here about was this pandemic uh, preventable? And, you know, to a certain degree, you know, obviously the epidemic was not. But it may have, you know, well, the pandemic means that it was across the world. So I guess it it couldn't have been either. But I think that to our, you know, to our experience here, if there was some some national mandate on how we were going to deal with it across the board, whether people were upset about it or not, and there was a lack of misinformation and there were more real information, then I think that people would be. Uh, we would be in a little bit better, uh, probably a much better position than we are now. But the reality is we still deal with people who feel like they're they're immune to everything. We still feel like, you know, people who feel like they're superhuman, especially our youth. You know, um, I look on Instagram and I look on these, you know, every single day we live in, in Atlanta. Ebony and I live in Atlanta. I know you're out in, out in Southern California, Sia. But these clubs are packed every single day of the week. I'm talking about there is a party and there's a club, a club packed every week. The restaurants, you know, if they allow indoor dining are packed, you know, and like you said before, nobody is eating with a mask on. They haven't created a mask that you can eat through the mask yet. So everybody's taking off their mask. We're going we're gonna to start having straw food, you know, like you just. I get you know, there are masks. Hole. There are masks that I've seen that has a straw hole. Um, but you know, I mean, regardless, it's gonna, you know, and, and, and the whole getting in, you know, um, these, uh, you know, getting in these closed environments. So, um, you know, until that stuff stops, I don't, I don't see it turn around unless we get, you know, the, the, you know, 70%, 75% of people taking the vaccine and it actually working. Um, to but, it, get, but it's our response back step. to my point. It's our responsibility to start to hold these politicians, these people accountable 
for their behavior and including yeah. news news outlets, right? Um, the fact that news outlets are owned by one parent company and then you're getting six versions or semi versions of something. Uh, also, it you know holding uh, the Facebooks and the Instagrams and the 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 sources of this non fact checked information that's that's going viral and then us as communities we've like we like reality tv now this be mm-hmm. has become like what it is reality tv isn't really reality there they set up storylines it's not reality we think it's reality because there's it's not it doesn't look like a sitcom that we recognize but it's really not but this is what we're allowing to go on as citizens here and until we say okay, enough is enough, or we need to change a direction. We're going to continue to, I mean, this pandemic is teaching us that, right? If this is a very unique situation that none of us in this, this, this call ever thought we would see in our lifetimes. Right. Right. Right, For sure. But our response to it and the fact that it's this chaotic, right? Not that it wasn't going to be, we only could know what we know. And I think to Ebony's point, right? There's only so much information. This is, you know, it takes years and years and years to come up with a synopsis of what this actually, the effect it actually had on culture, uh, on on the social aspects of life, on our bodies, uh, the vaccines, their long-term effects. That's also going to be something that we have to look at. But the thing is, is that we have a duty as people to hold these outlets responsible and accountable for their uh, their part in it, the same way that we need to hold ourselves accountable for our health and the way we eat and not walking around or getting any exercise or all the things that are putting us in positions where we are in that group that is uh, more susceptible to having some kind of, you know, reaction to this this pandemic. Because they say that, it that this could happen again, right? That there could be an we saw Ebola and 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 first SARS swine flu, all this. This happens, right? But it's just this the way this one's spreading, they're saying, is a different situation, right? The other ones were making people so sick that by the the way that they were able to pass it wasn't always, you know, respiratory. It wasn't like a that they were spreading it through their, you know, their breath or their or any of that, they were, and they were also getting so sick by the time they were dying that they were not around many people, right? Where this situation is coming out in so many different ways, where people are walking around and they, they, they can yeah. have it, and they, and they mm-hmm. just don't even know it, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, so get it. So so let's get to the vaccinations. I think it's interesting that I, I love the way this, this conversation is going, but I think as we as we talk about it and, and actually talk about what's happening with the vaccinations. Um, there was a, I had an interesting conversation earlier today and they were talking about, man, you know, um, we were told, you know, talking about information, we're told by the top scientists that it takes, you know, four years, you know, or two years to actually get a vaccination for something like this. And we end up having a vaccination in what, 10 months or something like that, or less than a year. Ebony, tell me what, what, you know, what, what do you think the reason or how could we have a vaccination that's currently being distributed around the country in 10 months when, you know, we've been told all this time that it takes years to actually get a, a, a real vaccination? Yes, I think the, the long and short of it is um, 
politics, right? So we've seen our government really put um, a lot of pressure on these pharmaceutical companies um, to, and others to help, um, you know, come up with something quickly. And that's not to say, though, that the or the farm the pharma companies aren't doing the right thing. Um, so let me just make that clear. So we also are in a situation that we have seen with this COVID-19 that we are using technology in ways that we've never used technology before, right? And so we also recognize that there are technologies out there that can help us do things quicker, faster, better, right? And so um, there, so, so I don't want to downplay the fact that many of these organizations are using novel technologies in the development of of these um, these vaccinations, but you're right. You know, vaccine development does not <laughs> ever happen in ten months ever. And one of the concerns that people have, and I think that it's a very valid concern, is that you know we've seen clinical trials go to go through all you know of the phases and get to the point like we see with the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines where they have been approved for emergency use by the Food and Drug Administration. Mm-hmm. And so one of the one of the challenges with that, you know, quick development of vaccinations is that many of the clinical trials that were that were happening um, were struggling to enroll minorities into the the trials. And so what happened, and and that's natural, right? For pretty much all of the um, drugs and vaccines that have been developed, it's always been difficult to get minorities enrolled for a whole lot of historical reasons. Oh, yes. Yeah. And um, and so just like with those trials, with the, with these trials, we've seen the same thing. And so when you don't have a um, diverse pool of individuals in the clinical trials, then you really can't say with um, with a high level of confidence that your drug or your vaccine is not going to have an adverse effect on certain Um, cross-sections of the population. So that's one concern. The second concern is, like Sia mentioned earlier, we do not have the luxury of, you know, following people for a year, two years, five years with this vaccine to see what the long-term consequences are of this particular vaccine. And so when, you know, when you t- take a, a vaccination to, you know, basically to, to the population within 10 months, you, you don't, um, you, you can't say with confidence that this vaccine is going to be effective. And I, and, and I think we're starting to see that with some of the um, adverse reactions that people are having to the vaccine. And that's not even to say adverse reactions aren't common, um, they usually happen at you know varying levels of severity, but you know just thinking about you know having multiple cases of people in Alaska having you know very serious allergic reactions to the medication kind of makes you think, well, did they have any Alaskans in any of their clinical trials, right? right. Um, and so you know those are some of the challenges. 
is that um, I think the government and the pharmaceutical companies are going to have to try to overcome in, in terms of their messaging to people, in terms of their um, recruiting efforts to get folks diverse people into these clinical trials um, so that we can determine what those long-term consequences are going to be of the vaccines. Right. So so let's like, and Akhil, I'm going to ask this so that you can answer since I've been talking a lot because I find this so fascinating, but, but uh, let's talk about and this isn't, I mean, Ebony can, of, of course, chime in, but I don't think it requires. Let's talk about really quickly why people of color, since we, we call this a diversity and inclusion podcast, why they are so unlikely to 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 submit themselves to a, a trial or and or uh, their fear in getting vaccinated at all or trusting the medical community. So, so why do you, and, and, and because not all our guests would be familiar with some of the things that have happened in history, but why, why, why would you think, or why would you state that people of color have a distrust of, of, of this particular um, scenario? Well, I mean, I think it goes, I mean, think about it. It goes all the way back to, um, you know, slavery, it goes, you know, and then and then to the present and the fact that we have had, um, you know, been subject to, um, you know, multiple uh, without volunteering, multiple tests and, you know, experiments and, you know, just I mean, it, it's a it's a trust factor. You You said distrust. I mean, that's exactly what it is. It's the fact that you know, and, and as educated as, you know, a lot of my colleagues, a lot of people that I know, um, as 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 rich as the, you know, information that we may get, you know, um, you know, of those that we actually really do trust. Like I trust e Ebony and her information implicitly, but I still feel like I'm nervous. I'm absolutely nervous about about the vaccine. I was talking to someone the other day, you know, will you, you know, Will you give it to your kids? You know, will you will you suggest to give it to your kids? My wife works it in, in, in the hospital right now, and they are they are vaccinating all the health professionals right now, like in droves. I mean, they have this you know this huge vaccine. She was at a vaccination event this evening, um, and they were vaccinating, and she's like. They can vaccinate all the people they want, all them doctors getting vaccinated, all the nurses getting vaccinated. You know, I'll help with the paperwork. I'm not about to jump on the needle myself, you know. And, and I just think that it's 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 because we have we've uh, we live in a country who has not taken care of us or looked after us or had our best interests at heart um, for most of our existence here. And so. Uh, unfortunately, you know, we are, you know, we're going to be a population where, you know, as Ebony said before, it's not even about the anti-vaxxer situation. It's about just not going to the doctor, period. It's not about getting our, you know, our annual vaccination. It's not about going to check our hearts and our blood pressures and our, you know, cholesterol and all the things that we know we need to, you know, because we all have family members that have died of heart attacks or died of heart disease. We all have family members who have had, you know, unfortunately in our communities, we've all had family members who have had diabetes. We've had family members who have had all of these, um, you know, I learned a new word, co, what's that word? co co what? Comorbidities. Comorbidities. Yeah, I'm adding that to the vocabulary. Um, don't, so, don't. Yeah, yeah. Next podcast, I'm saying it three times, watch. 
Um, but I'm just saying, we, you know, to, to your question, see, I mean, we, we've, our existence here has, has built up a level of, of distrust, um, that it's, it's really tough to not only, um, you know, ourselves, and this is, you know, this is educated. If, if, you know, the less education you have, the harder it is to convince. And then the other part of it is that, um, you know, we, we, you know, we just, it's just a trust thing. And it's interesting um, watching the messaging, Ebony, you just mentioned the messaging and everything around these vaccinations, um, you know, watching the first, first of all, Dr. Fauci himself talk about the sister that created, you know, the, uh, the vaccination or the first version of it. And, and then the sister, the first person in the whole country to get the vaccination was a, was a black nurse, you know, and the fact that, you know, Obama said, as soon as Fauci said, it's good, I'm getting it. And, you know, and this whole huge push to kind of counter our distrust and disbelief in the system and in, you know, in what's going on. So, um, you know, and that, and that's just not the African-American community, you know, things have happened to other Native uh, Americans. Oh, no, absolutely. Latino, Latinas, mm-hmm. Asians and, and the whole, any, any brown skin, you know, across the board um, has had some kind of, um, you know, some kind of situation where there was some mad scientists trying to see what this does to, to them. And, you know, that's the, that's where we are. So it's going to be, uh, it's going to be difficult, I think, to get, um, you know, I was, we, we were going to talk about, and I'm going to ask about the whole herd immunity thing, but it's going to be different, difficult if, if, you know, herd immunity is 70% of this country, that means 245 million around about people will have to get vaccinated in order for us to move forward and for us to not know what the long-term effects are for us to not know what, you know, the side effects are for different people, different blood types, different, you know, predispositions and all the other things that we, it's going to be tough to get to that, to that number. Um, and then, you know, we're dealing with the fact that, and I know I'm going on and on, but the, we're also dealing with the fact that, you know, there's been this talk about using the military to distribute it and using, you know, and all this, you know, all this mandatory for you to get back to work. You have to have it for you to go back to school. You have to have it for you to go, you know, any time of, you know, in normalcy of life, you have to have it. And it's almost like you're going to have to walk around with your card, you know, or some kind of barcode or something that says that you received it in order to engage in regular society. And so what is that going to be like? You know, well, you know, I've had conversations and I used to be a little bit of a, 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 well, a lot of bit of a religious person. Right. So, uh, you know, I've had people have conversations about just that. Right. Because there are things in the Bible that basically indicate that there'll be some some way that you're going to be asked to do something that labels you. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I, I think there's so many things to combat the distrust, the Tuskegee experiment. You had cells taken from, you know, um, black people with unbeknownst to them so that they could do research. You have 23andMe. I happen to be three races, right? So 23andMe keeps coming back at me and wanting to do studies on like how I eat and all these other things because I'm Asian, black and white, right? So they 
are wanting to know like, okay, that genetic mix-up situation, what exactly is the impact on your genetics and your body, um, which is, it, it's a little troubling to me. Actually, you know, at first I was like, oh, that's kind of cool. They want to know how I do this. But it's like study after study after study that they're asking me to participate in. And then I took a step back and I was like, why is that? Because they're trying to figure out well, now Henrietta. they have my DNA. So now they want to know, like, well, how does that, you know, to study off of that. But I think Native Americans, you know, you had smallpox that was brought in and spread. I think in every community of color, like to your point, Akil, we have had stories passed down to us where there was some kind of trust in, in a group of people or the government or what that ended up turning out not to be exactly what it, it, it was out there to be. But in order to trust there's got to be a point where we actually engage, right? You cannot, we can keep spreading these stories until forever and ever, but at what point are we going to actually know that it's okay? Do you have thoughts on that, Ebony? Like, when are we going to know at people of color that it is okay to start to trust that there, there's not a, we're not being labeled for the end of days or we're not being, I've heard people say, where well, we're being ejected with a tracker, like, a, you know, people are saying and the people are like, I read an article and I'm like, they're tracking the vaccine, not you. But 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 they're, it's all out here. Right. People right. are talking it about is. it. People are feeling this way. So in order to build trust, what do we have to do? So there's so many things that we need to do. And that's part of the challenge. So I think the first thing I'll mention is we have to get to a point here in the United States where we are willing to help to uh, clarify the record. So there are a number of um, universities. There are a number of other organizations um, that have named buildings. They have statues, you know, that they have erected and that, you know, are, are, are symbols on uh, campuses and in, in organizations and in communities that, um, that bear the name of doctors and researchers that have done all of those things that you've mentioned that have, you know, um, conducted research on people of color and um, against their will, without anesthesia, right? Um, without giving, without con them consenting and being notified of what the um, potential consequences would be of their participation in, in, in the research. So that's one thing, we, you know, we, there needs to be a reckoning um, at these different Usually, at these research universities, um, where they need to um, they need to do something about that and be serious um, and do it for the right reasons. Um, so that's number one. Number two, we definitely need to do a better job um, of the researchers that are out there and doing clinical trials. There needs to be um, more cultural competency developed among that population. Um, you know, there was a. My husband recently told me about a researcher who who came and spoke to their at one of their fraternity meetings, and she did not represent you know that community, and she really did not speak with the level of um, cultural competence to them. And they, you know, they were being recruited to assist with. Um, clinical trial recruitment efforts. And so, you know, of course, you know, they're not feeling very comfortable in, in working and partnering with, with that researcher. 
for a lot of good reasons. And so we need to do a better job of training researchers um, in, in the area of cultural competency and, um, you know, taking an equity focus in the work that they are doing. I think the other thing that we need to do is we really need to develop more um more trust in all of our health systems, our public health systems, our federal agencies that are responsible for health, um, because that trust has been diminished. And so there definitely needs to be a full court press on, you know, helping to get that um, their get get that trust back and get them elevated again, to the level where, you know, people know that the, the materials, the language, the resources that are coming out of those organizations are, you know, they, they could be trusted. Um, there, there's a high level of fidelity in the content that's coming out and it's, um, and it does have an equity focus to it. Um, but then the other piece is we really need to get our folks to their, to a doctor, right? A doctor that they trust um, we need to make sure that our physicians are um, having real conversations with folks and spending the time with folks that they need to in order to answer questions that people have, in order to dispel myths that are going around. Um, but also the, the physicians really need to be connected to the researchers, right? So that they can know what's, you know, what clinical trials are happening in these different communities. Um, and also to maybe serve as a as an um, a, a partner in getting individuals connected to the clinical trials, so that we can see that diversity um, in the in the participants, such that when it becomes time for all of us to get vaccinated, right, we have more confidence in you know the the vaccines um, effectiveness in people of color. And, uh, and that's a lot. I mean, that's a huge undertaking, but that's what it's going, going to take in order for us to get to a point where, um, where we as, um, as minorities feel and, and other underrepresented groups feel comfortable with, um, with any of this, whether it's COVID or whether it's some new pain medicine that someone's working on. It's the same, you know, it's, it's the same, like we have to get to that point and, um, and that's, that's a heavy lift. I think that that your point about cultural competency is huge. Um, you know, I, I, there are uh, well-known studies and, and, and happenings and events that have happened um, where, you know, even when we can get folks to the hospital, like you were talking about, you know, we really need to get our folks to the doctor. We really need to get checked out. Well, there are, you know, many of us who do go, but when we go, we are, we feel disrespected. We feel belittled. We feel like, um, you know, I'm telling you all of these symptoms and you were being blown off. Well, you just have this or you just have that. We're pushed medication on us that we either know we shouldn't be taking or that we are have questions about and we're not getting answers to. So there's a whole bunch, I think, beyond just just getting, and I, I think you covered it all, but just to, beyond getting to to the doctor. And then the other thing is, is, you know, for us who um, are starting to trust, cause I have never been a huge going to the doctor. You know, it was until I was probably in my late twenties, early thirties that I was like, okay, let me start going every year. Let me start getting, you know, this and that. Um, and it wasn't until then that I, you know, 
had started taking my blood pressure serious and those kind of things. And I remember being told, you know, you probably have had damage done because you probably had high blood pressure for years and never came. Um, so it's that, but I think that the other thing, and this is the whole, you know, uh, with the new administration and with, you know, the huge debate in Congress is around access, right? And, and you know, a universal system and, and making sure that everybody in America, at least, can go and get good care and, you know, equal care to a certain degree. Um, and so I think that that's a huge huge piece. But I think that's your point about the cultural competency of the doctors, um, the researchers, and all of that is is for our community probably more of a heavy weight than even just the, you know, convincing people they got to go to the doctor. Because if someone has something or feels some kind of way or their body feels different, they a lot of them will, will want to go. But then, you know, there there's also the whole thing about, you know, I'm getting charged $300 for a Tylenol. Or I'm getting, you know, and can't afford it in the access and all that kind of thing. So I think that that's that's huge. I wanted to ask um, real quick because I know that we're, we're going to come to an end here in, in the next few minutes. But I wanted to ask what you guys thoughts were around um, kind of the main difference between the COVID-19 response teams of the Trump administration and the COVID-19 response team that we are kind of see forming in the Biden administration? And what are what are you think the main differences are between those two groups? Well, for me, I think we we already know in many ways what the differences are going to be because we have um, President-elect Biden who served under President Obama. And during that administration, it was very clear that there was um, a huge trust in the scientists and um, an interest in making sure that we were prepared for any type of um, epidemic that 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 might happen here in the United States, and we so we were connected to the World Health Organization. We have um, we had funding that was available. Um, we had a task force that was you know already formed to deal with um, developing a response to situations just like the one that we find ourselves in right now. And um, and then when the new administration came in, we saw that you know those preventive measures were were disbanded. And so I think that what we'll see with the with the Biden administration is a return to what we saw during the Obama administration, which is which was really a more robust response than than many of the other administrations um, in terms of making sure that we would be ready for something like this. And so, you know, I think that we're going to return to to that um, pre-Trump administration time and we're going to see a return to funding for, you know, task force so that we can be ready. We're going to see a return of funding to our agencies that do this work um, so that our response won't be disjointed Mm -hmm. and um, that we are making sure that the right messages are getting out to the communities that need to hear them. Right on. Go ahead. See I mean, I, I mean, I, I agree. Um, I, I agree with everything that um, Ebony said. I, I just think that um, again, I go back to, you know, uh, us really being responsible. We, we tried that experiment for 
for four years. It was obviously a gamble that we took, right? And unfortunately, in that four-year period, a pandemic hit the world, right? And because of the decisions that were made, the dismantling of, of, of the of, of the task force and they had a playbook that was already there, right. Which they didn't, uh, they didn't use. Right. And there has been, you know, voice clips basically saying that the, there was an awareness of how uh, fatal this situation could end up being and out of fear, they decided to hide it. Right. And so that to me, uh, is very telling and, uh, super, concerning, right? Just just for us as American people to know that uh, the information, at least up to what they, they could have known, right? What was there? Um, obviously, you know, when you're faced with something, you have to react the way that you think is best. I just don't trust that what we what we saw was the best of what we could have gotten, right? And maybe the, you know, in other countries, um, uh, you know, Singapore, there are other uh, countries that are much sm smaller, but still reacted a lot differently and were uh, able to not suffer the fatalities and the numbers of people who have gotten COVID in this country for many reasons, but mostly because of the way that they responded and how they treated their citizens, right? Mm -hmm. uh, I just think that there was a disregard for human life in this, in this particular situation. And, um, you know, what infuriated me about this in administration, um, was that when the president himself got COVID, um, you know, they flew him away to, uh, the best hospital possible and he, he got, uh, the best possible care, um, not the care that most Americans are accustomed to getting. And he was able to probably get the, the best and highest quality, uh, be it that it might have been experimental treatment right at that point, but he, but whatever they knew the best of best of, he got it right so that he was able to come out a couple of days later, take off his mask and walk, walk up those stairs. But to me, that was like a slap in the face of all of the people yes. whose family members had died right. from COVID that didn't have access to that kind of care, nor did they have access to any experimental treatment, right? Or any kind of vaccine or whatnot, right? They, they, they didn't even at that point um, have that. And I think it was a, it was a, it's infuriated me. Also him getting in the car to do uh, a narcissistic right. lap with his secret service while he had COVID with no mask on. I just, it just blows my mind what we have uh, dismissed and allowed in this scenario and the outrage that, on one side is definitely there, but on the other side, it's totally excused or, you know, it, it's, it's explained away or whatever. So I'm hoping that, yes, I think that we're in better. Anyone would have been better just to be honest, but I, I know that Biden and, and Harris actually uh, is not going to disregard human life, right? They're going to try to take their best shot. I mean, and I've said this to a kill before. I don't know who would want to be president in this moment. Right. The fact that, that Biden and Harris are taking this huge, this is like the worst job that you ever, honestly, like if you had a train wreck of a job and you were offered it and they were like, Hey, you want this, you want this hot mess? And do you want to take this job on? And they raised their hand and they said, yeah, I'll take it. Right. right? I mean, I'm just excited to see what they do because it has to be better than what we're dealing with today. And that gives me some, uh, I guess relief, right? Um, 
I, I think it was uh, nine months, 10 months too late, but, but Hey, what, what can you do? I don't want us to get off though, this conversation without talking about the, the vaccines, right. That are available. Mm -hmm. Right. And um, kind of what it is because two of them to me, which is the Pfizer and the Moderna, which is the messenger RNA that is new technology, right, Ebony? So I really kind of wanted to get your thoughts, even though you might not have researched this particular uh, uh, RNA, messenger RNA, but I read an article about it and I was telling Akil before we got on the other week that was super interesting to me because what I read of it is that the Pfizer and Moderna vaccine is based on uh basically uh, technology, right? It, it, Cause it's going to insert not the actual COVID virus in any way. It's, it's like a DNA replication, uh, replication, right. In, in that it goes into your body and it basically um, forms like it, it, it makes a, a, it sends a message into your DNA and kind of changes it in a way where um, it, it, it tries to recognize that it's the virus, even though it's not and build the immunity that way. And what I read on it was that this is the first time it's ever being used this way. And it's very, it's a very hopeful path forward because it also, what they're saying is if it works and if it's, if this is really the future of what medicine looks like, other diseases have a shot at maybe being eliminated, right? Um, because it, it's actually changing the way that your DNA um, responds to things, right? To cells and other things like cancer. So what are your thoughts on messenger RNA? Do you know anything about it? Have you thought about it? So I'll be honest, this is not my area of expertise. Um, however, one of the things that I think is important to recognize is that with, with any vaccine that you get, you know, the vaccine um, will protect you from getting severely sick, regardless mm -hmm. of whether it's this one or whether it's um, whether it's one that's kind of like inactive virus. Um, but it's still possible that you could carry the virus um, and you could you could also spread it. And so although we have these vaccines that are out, our you know health agencies are saying you still need to practice all of those safeguards that we were telling you to practice beforehand. Mm -hmm. So you still need to wear a mask. You still need to wash your hands a lot. You still need to be physically distant from people. You still need to limit your travels and contacts. Um, and the thing about, and, and I think Akil mentioned earlier about herd immunity, regardless of what vaccine is out there, right? You know, depending on the vaccine or depending on the illness, you might, uh, herd immunity might be anywhere between 50% and 90% of individuals who um, need to have come in contact with it, right, and have developed an immune response, whether that's the vaccine or the actual virus, right? And so in, in the case of things like mumps and measles and polio, that's what has happened, right? Mm -hmm. We've gotten to a place where um, that, you know, we have that herd immunity Except in those communities where we've had like, you know, anti-vaxxers, high percentage of anti-vaxxers. We have individuals that for other reasons um, did not get, for example, their children immunized. And so we've seen here recently measles make a comeback in the United States. Mm -hmm. And so we just have to make sure that, 
you know, we are educating people on all of the things related to vaccines. Um, but like I mentioned earlier, the technology is changing quite rapidly and how vaccines are being developed is also changing quite rapidly. And so I don't want to discount any of the vaccines that are out there, because I think that they all have value. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a lot that we could learn from how all of these different pharmaceutical companies are um, developing their vaccinations. But I, I still recommend that, you know, people need to communicate. Number one, they need to get to their doctors because their doctors are going to be the best source of information in terms of what they should do to protect their personal health. And so people need to have a doctor. They need to have a doctor that they trust. And that doesn't always mean that the doctor needs to look like you, but you need to have a doctor that you can talk to. You need to have a doctor that doesn't rush you out of the office if you have a question. And you need to have these conversations about which vaccine should I take? Because just because the um, Pfizer and Moderna vaccines are what's available now, you know, ultimately there are going to be other vaccines out there in the field that have been developed in different ways. And so your doctor is going to be, you know, one of the the best person to talk to about how that might affect you considering your body and all of the things that your doctor knows is going on within your body. That's the key. Um, And people need to, um, because the majority of people don't understand vaccines anyway, right? Right, right. And how they're developed and what the side effects are and all that other stuff. But the key is to make sure that you're connected to people who who can give you the real um, and the things that you need to know to make an informed decision for yourself. And that makes, that's interesting because I I wanted to jump in there real quick because I I was thinking about um, the Moderna and, and Pfizer and, you know, we were, when they were doing, you know, some of the information that was coming out um, from different sources, you know, they talked about the Pfizer one being 95% effective and the Moderna one being 94.1% effective. Like when, when we get, when we hear that, like, what does that mean? Does that mean that it's effective for people to not get infected? I mean, if they get the, the, so 95% of, of those that they, followed um, after they received the vaccination did not get infected or how does does that? Right. They uh, didn't have an immune response that was such that they would be considered um, um, infected or, um, and so, yeah, so we have, and again, the the question is there, they have this immune response, but for how long? Right. Right. So months ago, um, a, I had a situation where um, someone that I knew tested positive for a second time. And remember, the the thinking was that once you became COVID positive, that you would be immune. Um, well, just a couple of months after that person tested positive, the first time they tested positive again. After um, and after how, how many months was it? Three? <laughs> it was like three, hmm, like two and a half, two and a half. Months. Well beyond the 14 days and all the <laughs> no, but but they years. said that you would be immune at first six months, That's right? And then they went back to three months. That's why I asked, okay. is it? How, and she said less than three months. So that's even more. Right. That was before the first case came out in the news. Okay. Yeah. That someone had tested positive for a second time. So you know you. 
there's just still a lot to learn. And I'll tell you, I have friends who work in pharmaceuticals and who are working to develop COVID vaccines. And I will say the people who are, are who are working to develop these vaccines, they're good folk, right? They're, they're our cousins and, you know, friends and they are doing they are doing a yeoman's job right now, working long hours, you know, pulling all of the the um, education and resources that they have to save the world to develop this. And so, you know, they are doing what we would expect for them to do at this point. And so I do think that the vaccines are going to be safe for us. Um, the question is, you know, how will we know? When will we know that that's the case? And so and until then, we have to do um, the right thing for ourselves. But we need to do that in consultation with our physician. We need to make sure that we are connected to our, our doctors and we're having these real open and honest conversations about how we're feeling and what you know will be the best course of action given what our doctors know about us. So, so before we end and wrap it up, this has been like so educational for me and, and a really good conversation. Um, I did look up a WebMD and obviously like what I do normally with WebMD is like if I have any symptom of any kind, then I go to WebMD and then I freak myself out because right. I think that I'm dying because it always says like the worst case scenario back to the best. It's like you have a cold or you could be dead. Right. So, but what I did want to kind of read off just so people do know you know, briefly about what WebMD um, is. And obviously, you, I do think what your advice is, Ebony, is the best is be your own advocate, go see your own physician, um, ask a lot of questions, don't allow them to rush you out. If you have a physician that rushes you out, you could try to get another physician, you know, you don't need I mean, some rural areas, it's not as easy. So to your point, you know, they you can't just go if that's the only doctor in town, a lot of people, but hopefully there's a next town. I mean, but you if you you've got to feel a level of comfort, especially going into this this next period of time. But so the vaccine developers so far are Pfizer, Moderna and AstraZeneca. But to your point, Ebony, there should be others probably coming behind them. Right. That Absolutely. There are tons of pharma companies that are that are literally right now working um, on the vaccine and, and are at different um, phases mm -hmm. in terms of their clinical trial testing. So we will see a number of other vaccines go to the FDA for approval. Yes. Okay. And then how it works. So Pfizer's mes messenger RNA that we talked about earlier, Moderna's uh, messenger RNA, and then AstraZeneca is uh, inactivated cold virus mm -hmm. that they're saying. Uh, when it was approved or expected to be approved. So Pfizer was approved on December 11th, it says. Uh, Moderna had the FDA advisory committee approved on December 17th. Full FDA approval expected 24 to 48 hours after. So by now, it uh, or it's, it's, it's happened or it will happen tomorrow, right? Uh, uh, and then AstraZeneca has not submitted the application for emergency use authorization in the U.S. So that has not been released yet. Uh, what percentage of uh, people uh, did it protect getting infected in clinical studies? So clinical studies, I think we kind of hit on it, but it's where people get um, 
there's a group that's a placebo group, right, Ebony? And then there's a group that actually get the vaccine that they're using, and then they right. study the effects of uh, uh, of those two groups to see um, if anyone develops COVID or there's any symptoms or whatever else happens after that, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Awesome. Look, I'm not a doctor, but I'm just mm-hmm. wanting to make sure we get it out there. Podcast. Uh huh. So F- Pfizer, it was 95% effective. I think Akil said this. Uh, the uh, Moderna was 94.1, and AstraZeneca was at 70% effective. Uh, how many shots do you need? It's saying that Pfizer, you'll need two doses three weeks apart. Moderna, two doses four weeks apart. And AstraZeneca will be two doses a month apart. What are the side effects for Pfizer? There's fatigue, headache, chills, muscle pain, especially after the second dose. For Moderna, fever, muscle aches, headaches lasting a few days, effects worse after the second dose. And um, the AstraZeneca not yet known. So they, they don't know yet um, the, the side effects. How many doses will be available and when? So 50 million starting December 18th, 1.3 billion in 2021 for Pfizer, um, 20 million for Moderna starting December 21st and 80 million for the U.S. in 2021. And then for AstraZeneca, 3 billion are planned for 2021. So if we added that up, 81, about 84, 80, almost 84.3 billion will be available and yeah and keep in mind that individuals need two doses so cut that in half that oh that's how many people mm-hmm. potentially would be able to access the vaccinations in that time period yeah and then it says who is it recommended for so Pfizer it says people 16 years and older but for Moderna and AstraZeneca it says not yet yet available so they haven't given an age uh limit there and then what about pregnant women and nursing moms? That's a really interesting question because uh, if you've ever been pregnant, Ebony and I, you you aside, Akil, um, when you are pregnant and you get sick, it's like the worst situation ever because they don't give you anything for anything. Like they're like taking aspirin and leave basically, you know, and that's it. Um, so, you know, I think a lot of pregnant people are probably concerned about this question. So pregnant women... Um, have this um this question obviously for Pfizer uh pregnant women or, or or nursing moms who want covid vaccine should check with um their physician about it um at this point um that's the direction they're giving for the Moderna it's not available yet that information and for the um the uh, Moderna and the AstraZeneca, it's not yet, yet available. So, and then is there anyone who shouldn't get the vaccine? Um, people with a history of serious allergic reactions, there is not enough data to make a recommendation for people with a compromised immune system for the Pfizer one, not yet available for Moderna and for AstraZeneca. So that's the facts from WebMD. Gone to
Boss, 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 boss. 